0: There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective.
1: Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. I'm Keegan and I'm Madigan and you're listening to your Your angry Angry neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hello. Hello, Madigan. How are you today? Hello, darling. Um, not great, but feeling better because we just recorded the mini and doing this always makes me feel better.
2: Yeah, I hear you. There is something kind of like nice. I don't want to say relaxing because oftentimes we're talking about terrible, terrible things. Right. But, you know, it's good to just connect, especially in these times, yeah. these trying times, TM. It's good to connect with another person.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and it's commiserating together a bit. It's getting, you know, company. And I don't talk to enough variety of people in my day-to-day life so the fact that I get to talk to Keegan once a week for a while is like pretty cool it always makes me feel yes. better for a while you know yes
2: So we wanted to do another episode uh, for Hispanic Heritage Month this week. Uh, We did one last week. We hope you all enjoyed that episode. We actually got some really wonderful suggestions on things to do. Unfortunately, I will be leaving for the month of October. Yeah. If you didn't know or you didn't hear that, I think I put it at the beginning of the Sex in the City episode, but I am going to go... Fight the good fight in the Midwest. So everyone, pray for me. Yes,
1: please keep Keegan in your thoughts.
2: Yes, please do. Send me all of the good vibes. I'm excited to go home, but there is a certain amount of apprehension, just given our political climate at yeah. this moment, is yes. a little scary. But I'm I'm also, I have a deep and abiding love for the Midwest. So oh, I'm of excited course. And to you're experience be there in the fall.
1: fall you yes, know, exactly. Like- It's great. It's so funny. You know, if you guys uh, listen to the Boobies and Newbies podcast, our friend Kelly, we are obsessed with Kelly. We love her so much. She just moved from LA to my hometown of St. Paul. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, we totally switched places. And she's like all about the fall on her Instagram. And I'm like, I just love her so much. And I'm so jealous that she's there right now. It looks so beautiful and chilly. I just want like Mm. a warm latte in like a Comfy sweater. All I fall.
2: ever want is just some spiked cider. I'm like, give me like a little bit of whiskey and a cider and a hot cider outside with some crisp leaves. Yeah, that's I'm very excited. I haven't been home in the fall. I haven't experienced fall in about nine years. Yeah. So I, I can't wait. I'm Sounds- very Especially since
1: Los Angeles is over 100 degrees at the moment. We're literally on fire everywhere. Like it's, it's insane. It's it really horrible. is. So as you we were saying, we are going to kind of continue our uh, celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month and I did want to bring something up at the top because we had a listener who wrote us in on Instagram recently who mentioned our episode that we did last year where we just kind of of talked about Latinx feminism and you know they had expressed that they wish that we had had somebody on the show you know that was you know Latinx that could speak to that experience and you know we unfortunately aren't always able to get somebody on the show that has that experience but also The big thing for us is that we love to choose topics that we don't always know a whole lot about. Uh, We are definitely not experts on this topic. I am definitely not expert on this topic. Most of the things that I'm going to be telling you about are like new things that I learned that I think are super awesome and I want to tell you about. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, so remember I t- that we're going through that lens of education, you know? Right. Well, I mean, this podcast has
2: always been through our own personal feminist perspectives, which <laughs> I know in the beginning of this podcast, you and I had talked you know, very in-depth about wanting to have guests on. Unfortunately, especially during this pandemic, coordinating all of that in addition to everything else that's going on is just really hard. But I will say, when I was doing the prep for this episode, I did think several times while making my notes, man, I wish I had more experience because there's a lot yeah. of, there's a lot of overlap between the Chicana feminist movement and the black feminist movement. Yeah. There's a lot of kind of similar things. And I liked that I would, I was able to kind of give a little bit of personal experience when talking about black feminism. And I can't give that here because I just don't right. have that cultural experience. Yes. I wish I, I could expound upon it more. Or we had someone on who was able to give a first you know, first person kind of experience. Um, But we are gonna do our best.
1: Yeah, podcasting is not a visual medium. I'm a white girl. So I definitely don't have much say in it. So everything that I am saying for the most part is in pure admiration, uh, education, excitement It is in no way for me saying that I am an expert on this. By any stretch of the imagination, I am a cisgendered white chick. I am not trying to say that I am an expert on Chicana feminism at all. But however, I do find it incredibly fascinating and beautiful and wonderful. And that's why I still want to talk about it. And, know and more you about know, it. I love history, so yeah. I loved
2: getting into the the other elements and kind of like what helped kickstart this movement. So I guess we should yeah. start off by telling people. And I actually found a really great. I read several articles, but and I think I used them for my toxic masculinity episode or something like this. Website comes out of the like woodwork with things oftentimes.
1: What, which website was it?
2: UMich. Edu. So yes. They, they oftentimes it – it's a it's like a university. Yeah. And they have the best, like, articles about topics, like, random topics.
1: I and, have actually started reading a lot of college essays this year for my notes every once in a while. Yeah, like, just, there are I some really good ones. Yeah, like, I don't always, like, quote them because that seems really difficult to, like, cite it and everything. But I'll, like, read them to get information, and they're always really, really good. They're great. And
2: so that website or that university – Uh, They define Chicana feminism as an ideology based on the rejection of the traditional, quote, household role of a Mexican-American woman. It challenges the stereotypes of women across the lines of gender, ethnicity, class, race, and sexuality. Most importantly, it serves as a middle ground between the Chicano movement, which we'll be talking about a little bit, and the women's liberation movement. And I found this interesting... Not interesting, but, like, the most popular definition of Chicana is a Mexican-American female who was raised in the United States. Yes. But I do want to point out that the history here is very interesting, and I'm not going to go into it too much, but saying Mexican-American raised in the United States, while it's true, it's mm-hmm. somewhat misleading because, like Eva Longoria
1: says, mm-hmm. we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Exactly. <laughs> and the the interesting thing about calling you know, calling them Mexican American also I feel like is a way to kind of stress this like white American identity onto them. Absolutely. In such a way it's very much forcing this like Anglo Saxon way of you know well, being right. I mean
2: and what it comes down to, like when I say like we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us, it's because there's this very interesting history. And as someone who's born in New Mexico, you think I would know more about this history, but that goes to show you yeah, what's he, taught in geez. schools. Well, but what's taught, taught in schools is very much from a, a colonialist mindset. 100%. You know, yes. Because Mexico ceded to the U.S., uh, I think in like the late 1800s, mm-hmm. Arizona, California, New Mexico, Nevada, Utah, part of Colorado and part of Wyoming. So uh, the Mexican population living there, you know, in Mexico, yeah. <laughs> what was Mexico at the time, they now found themselves in part of the United States. So right. it makes sense that there is a very large Mexican population, especially in those areas.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I came across this when I was reading more into kind of like the borders and when the borders were developing. So they say at the end of the Mexican-American War, 80,000 Spanish-American Indian people were forced into the U.S. I mean, forced not physically because obviously they still lived there, but they were forced to be U.S. citizens. So there was this kind of indoctrination into like, well, what – what do you do with these people? You know what I mean? And I think there was a lot of segregation during that time from what I've read um, within the communities as to whether or not they should assimilate into the American culture and the more European standards or whether or not they wanted to hold on to some of their more indigenous roots. And that's also created a bit of some unrest, it seems, within that um, movement and community as well, especially during that time. Right. It's very interesting because
2: while I think the... The parallels between like Chicana feminism and black feminism. There are many, many parallels. Yeah. The one thing that I think differs is that for black people in the United States, we come from the culture of slavery, of being enslaved people. And so, of course, that is a product of colonialism in one way, but we don't have that direct link to colonialism that Mexican-Americans have. So there's this weird, not weird, but there's this multifaceted way of looking at Chicana feminism where, on the one hand, you have the Deep racism, xenophobia, colonialism that comes from being a non euro American right <laughs> you know in the United States, and on the other side of that, you have machismo culture, yes. which I found uh, some good articles on the culture of machismo in Mexico and its negative impacts on Mexican women. Which, I mean, along with the rise of white feminism contributed to the Chicana feminist movement. Yeah. But I wanted to just point out for people who maybe aren't familiar, I know we've touched on machismo culture when we talked about toxic masculinity. In many ways, it's very similar to what we see as toxic masculinity in America today, but it has deep cultural roots that are rooted in this, like, traditional Mexican-American, or not Mexican-American, but Mexican way of, of living.
1: Um, Right, well, and that was actually something that was a big problem with a lot of the women at that time, because the way machismo was kind of being packaged was a way that, like, this is Mexican culture. You know what I mean? Like They kind of put that stamp on like, well, this just is the way it is. And it started to kind of raise that question as to whether or not that is how it had to be, you know, or was this just this kind of cultural distorted view of masculinity that was being perpetuated? And that was really, you know, we're going to get into it after we've talked more about the history. But eventually it would be the catalyst to the Chicano feminist movement because of the extreme machismo within the Chicano movement. Right, yes.
2: So machismo literally means macho male, if I'm understanding the internet correctly. Do you remember the song? Um,
1: Of course you do. Macho, macho man. Yes, yes,
2: exactly. I mean, yes, exactly that. So it's defined as the sense of being, quote, manly and self-reliant. And the concept is oftentimes associated with a strong sense of masculine pride and exaggerated masculinity. And this term is present across many Latinx cultures. It's not just Mexican culture because the term is actually derived from both Spanish and Portuguese. So yeah. there's it, it's prevalent across many... I mean, toxic masculinity is pre- prevalent, prevalent across every, cultures in general. Own,
1: everyone's got their own brand, right? Right, well, because the patriarchy is present across the world in general. Well, and it's interesting because in the beginning of the Chicano movement, there wasn't as much of a, you know, focus on the machismo culture. Of course, there were a lot of, like, you know, uh, what does the family structure look like and things like that. There was a lot of talk in that, but because there wasn't that feminism, there wasn't any questions rising about the female's role within the family, and in fact, so as time went on, the Chicano members, the Chicano community started kind of taking on more and more of that machismo culture. There were uh, quotes from a few different court cases that has defined Chicano as quote a commonality of ideals and constructs. Again, I'm going to butcher every single Word. I understand Spanish. I can't speak it Uh, with respect to masculinity, family roles, and religious views. So it kind of evolved from, you know, focusing a lot on, you know, workers' rights and educational rights to kind of transforming into a bit of this more machismo culture within kind of the time of our second wave feminism, which then gave a lot of Chicano women ammunition to want to fight against that. Right. So, I mean, those things can exist. Equally at the same
2: time and it's kind of like we discussed that about the NAACP and about the Black Panther movement where they did a lot socially for black people while at the same time continuing to be misogynistic towards their own people. Right. And so I'll say that before we start talking about Chicano nationalism, which I found to be very interesting, Mm -hmm. the first inklings before Chicano nationalism even really like took off in the 50s, um, the first inklings of Chicano feminism that we see creep up is when Mexican-American women joined the suffrage movement and began campaigning for the right to vote in their own neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Los Angeles had become a center for the Chicana feminist movement because it had the highest Chicano-Chicana population in the United States. I mean, for
1: obvious reasons. Yeah, there's a lot of really great LA history in what I was reading.
2: Absolutely. Like, okay, so I whenever I did Penny Dreadful and I was doing like background on that show... They one time I was doing background and the director came and he actually gave us all. It was really cool. He gave us all like a big, long talk about the history of, you know, Chicano history in Los Angeles Uh and like what the scenes that we were supposed to be doing were about. Yeah. And it was basically saying that in Los Angeles during this time, in particular, across the Southwest, but particularly in Los Angeles, Chicanos were highly discriminated against, and they were often the targets of violence. If you don't know about the Zoot Suit Riots, you should go look that up, because it's a great example of it. Um, And this continued into the 50s and 60s, and there were curfews that were imposed on Mexican-American neighborhoods, stores discriminated with signs like, no dogs, no Mexicans, and just like black people, Mexican-Americans fell victim to discriminatory housing practices, such as redlining. And so when all of this was going on, um, this was is what led to the birth of the Chicano nationalism movement. Yes. Which was also known as El Movimiento. El Movimiento. Yes. I think that's how you say that.
1: I have In, to say it a few times for me to think that I'm maybe saying it right.
2: I think that's
1: it. But if I'm wrong, which I might be, please Move, let us know. Movimento? See, it's because I don't have the accent that I just sound like a dumbass white chick when I speak. Spanish Movimiento,
2: I think is what it is. Movimiento.
1: That sounds so much better. Movimiento. Okay. Yes.
2: So that movement was began that movement began in the nineteen fifties. And so the Chicano nationalism movement is a pro indigenous ethnic nationalist ideology that Chicanos hold. Yes. And while there are some nationalistic aspects of it, because I oftentimes think that when we think about, you know, black nationalism, or in this case, Chicano nationalism, we think of it as being very separatist. Mm -hmm. And so while there is an aspect of that, The movement tended to emphasize civil rights and political and social and social inclusion rather than nationalism itself. Yeah, there
1: was something that I kind of saw across the board within Chicano feminism and the Chicano movement was that they weren't afraid of collaborating with other people that they felt were being oppressed. And that understood their circumstances as far as like, especially, you know, with the black community and things like that, they realized that a lot of the struggles they were going through were very similar, um, while still very different. There was, I feel like, a sense of camaraderie. And something that I found very interesting later on, but kind of out of the blue now, is that a lot of Chicana feminist artists were known to collaborate much more than any other feminist art group. You know, they liked to, even with other men and other cultures and things like that, Mm -hmm. there was a a sense of collaboration there. And I see that a lot running through the themes of, you know, Chicana feminism through the years. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, of course... Well, oh, sorry. sorry, really quick. I was just going to say that the objectives for, you know, the... I guess... I don't want to call it the I almost called it the men's movement. I don't want to call it that... What do you call it again? I don't have it on my notes The
2: Chicano Nationalist Movement.
1: Chicano Nationalist Movement. I wasn't going to say the other word again. Um, Their objectives were unity, economy, education, institutions, self-defense, culture, and political liberation in an effort to bridge regional and class divisions among Americans of Mexican descent. So the first thing that's in there is unity. And that's what made me want to read what their clear objectives were because it wasn't about being better or being above anybody else it was about it was about unity and there is something you know and that's why we say it's so important to say black lives matter because of course everybody's life has meaning and everybody's life matters but there is something about pointing out the differences and the ways that things need to be changed that can pinpoint them for people to notice them for them to be changed does that make sense
2: yes it does make sense but i mean with that said like the fact that unity was the first thing on their kind of like docket of things that they cared about. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me that because of the way that society is set up being a patriarchy, right? I really feel like oftentimes it's not malice. It's just ignorance Mm -hmm. that people in this, in these movements, men who lead these movements can say things like unity and then exclude women from these movements, right? Right. Well, And, and not that's... be able to fight for women's rights in the same way that they're fighting for Mexican-American rights. Right. Know? Well,
1: and again, from the reading that I've done, it seems that there was a very, very, very strong like cultural patriarchal hold on, you know, the family setup, you know, that the woman would stay home and do the cooking and the cleaning and take care of the children and have the babies and all that kind of stuff where, you know, it was the man's job to go out and do those things. And, you know, as time went on, especially, you know, living in the U.S. when there's all of these amazing um, liberations happening all over the place in the 60s and 70s. Of course, women want to get in on that, and they're starting to notice that maybe they don't have to live their lives that way anymore. Right.
2: I mean, and we've talked many times on this podcast um, that intersectionality, wow, well, that intersectionality was a major issue in the first and second waves of the feminist movement. And this was no different. So, Chicano feminists quickly realized that the feminist movement, as it was in the second wave, mm-hmm. was not there to cater to their specific needs as mexican american women and it failed to not only combat racial inequalities but also class inequalities like they straight up just did not want to address uh these things and of course people of color women of color mexican women uh, black women they were at a disadvantage when it came to class like just because of the way that society had been set up so they followed these women these women followed the lead of african-american feminists in the united states who were often left out of both the black rights issues that were dominated by men and the women's rights issues that were dominated by euro-american women and they decided to completely start their own thing So Chicana feminists distinguished themselves from other feminist movements by offering critiques and responses to their exclusion from both the mainstream Chicano nationalist movement and the second wave feminist movement. So it was very specific to
1: their group, which is what they needed. They did. And it kind of started like a lot of these different movements did. They would, you know, join these small committees and groups where they would, you know, speak to each other about the things that You know, they felt they were struggling with and the things that they wanted changed. And that just kind of grew and grew. Uh, The Chicano Feminist Organization was created in 1969 at the Chicano Youth Liberation Conference. Uh, And at the conference, women began getting involved in male dominated dialogue to address concerns for the women. So they were standing up and starting to really vocalize their opinions on a broader stage, not just in their smaller, you know, committees and groups throughout their communities. Right.
2: Because that gathering, um, was actually, you know, it was co-edged. So there yeah. were 1,500 young men and women who assembled together at that time. And it was at that gathering that the term Chicano was actually adopted and used widespread. And it was at this conference that, you know, the Chicano movement started at this conference because women kind of forced their way in. Exactly. They shouldered their way in um, to incorporate themselves in these very male-dominated discussions uh they wanted to deal again not only with issues of racism but also issues of sexism not only in society but within their households yeah which was a which was a very controversial thing for them to be talking about at that Definitely. time um because i i think that a lot of chicanos or like members of the chicano nationalist movement took a front To the idea that they were maybe being
1: criticized. Right. Well, and I just I picture a lot of fear if it's something that's going on in your home currently, especially if you're speaking up about that, that sounds very dangerous to me and very scary.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. You're challenging this kind of power structure that has existed forever and and still exists, to be honest. Like it absolutely still exists uh, within these like cultural circles. There's this idea that uh, men are, are supposed to behave a certain way and that women are supposed to behave a certain way. And it's very traditional gender roles based. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. After the 1969 conference, um, women left that conference and then they created their own small groups across the country. So it actually spread the Chicana feminist movement uh, more rapidly because there were a lot more like small groups all over the country, Uh and this resulted in the formation of a lot of different organizations. One of these organizations was called La Raza Unida Party, Uh and this party was founded in Crystal City, Texas, a town of about 10,000 Mexican-Americans, which made up 80% of the town's population. So they made up 80% of the population, but they were still treated as second-class citizens in
1: their own city. So... There's that. Yes, definitely. Definitely a very fitting place to start it then. Uh, so, the first National Chicano Conference was held in Houston, Texas in May 1971. It was actually part of the International Decade for Women, which was a conference meant to discuss feminist issues and issues specifically to Chicano women. So, over 600 women came together to organize and discuss issues regarding equal access to education, reproductive justice, formation of childcare centers, and more. Unfortunately, the women had a hard time agreeing on the role of feminism in the Chicano movement, and the conflicts led to a Walk out on the third and final day. So, while they were all well intentioned, wanting to get together, talking about where their place is within the feminist Chicano movement, there were too many differing ideas to really uh, hone in on one objective. You know, different people had different objectives of what they wanted to get out of this feminist movement.
2: Yeah, I'm not surprised by that whatsoever. Of Because everybody like, has their own
1: demands, you know, and needs.
2: Everyone does, and then it's also, it's like a game of telephone, you know? Like, I just said that, like, when they all kind of, like, went back to their own cities, they kind of started these movements, and while that's amazing for their ability to have expanded the Chicana feminist movement as quickly as they did, the kind of downside, I say that in quotes, is that there isn't one cohesive platform that you're all getting There was no
1: organization, so it seems like this was kind of their attempt to bring it all together and figure out what their mission would be. But at this point, you know, they're getting, you know, hundreds of members together and they've already been – active for two years in their beliefs and things like that I would be I I would be the same way if I went in and somebody tried to tell me that my beliefs were not as important as somebody else's I would probably be very upset too you know right and I'm absolutely sure once again like this is something that
2: is very much steeped in their culture these traditional like gender roles are very much steeped within their culture that I'm sure that there were some people who were willing to just be like nah, throw it all away. it's garbage and there were some people who were like no know we need to hold on to some of these things that we might that others might deem as patriarchal beliefs because they're part of our culture, yes. and we want to uphold those parts of our well, culture. and that's a really and that stuff hard thing. Can cause tension. That's
1: a really hard thing to dissect too. Like especially if you're used to living one way of life and looking at the ways that you'd want to change it, that is incredibly daunting to think about.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I really liked this definition. This is kind of going back. And again, a lot of this is repeating information, but I actually just really liked this this definition. Uh, there's a book called La Chicana by Elizabeth Martinez, mm-hmm. and she writes that La Chicana is oppressed by the forces of racism, imperialism, and sexism. This can be said of all non-white women in the United States. Her oppression by the forces of racism and imperialism is similar to that endured by our men. Oppression by sexism, however, is hers alone. Mm -hmm. And I love how just like succinctly she put that because I feel like there ends up being again, I can't speak for Mexican culture, but like in African-American culture, there is definitely sometimes this rivalry not rivalry really because it's like we're all in the same fight but then I've definitely seen arguments break out between black women and black men. Yeah. And I like that she kind of states it whereas like the forces of racism and imperialism, these two things. We can all agree on. We can all agree on those things. They're endured. We all endure those things. Yeah. But the oppression of sexism is only endured by one part. Yeah. By one party. And the other party may have other challenges, right? Like Mexican men, black men, they face challenges that black women and Mexican women don't necessarily because oftentimes men are seen as more violent, more predatory than women. So they are going to face their own problems. Exactly. But it's not the
1: same. Yeah, it's not the same. We just need to address that. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, there were women that were very much involved in, you know, just the overall movements at the time, like, you know, the the farmers, you know, the especially living in L.A., do you hear the name Cesar Chavez all the time? All the time. Well, I mean, I
2: grew up in Las Vegas oh, okay. and we had Cesar Chavez Day that we got off school. No, I had and everything. Never, yeah. never heard
1: of the man in my life until I moved here and everything. There's schools named after him. And I'm like, who is this guy? Well, he was pretty awesome. So in 1962, the United Farm Workers or UFW was organized, founded by Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, Gilbert Padilla, and Philip Vera Cruz. So Dolores Huerta is awesome and I could get in she is super awesome I almost picked her for last yeah week. like that's what I was gonna say we could mm-hmm. go into a whole like 30 minute spiel about her but we can't today unfortunately um but because of these wonderful people their organization helped farm workers secure better working conditions for Hispanic farmhands in California and there's another movement that I again was kind of like damn I wish we could like have a whole episode dedicated to this because I was really fascinated by the Chicano student movement especially because there was so much yes. in LA and I you know I And there's huge overlap between the Chicano student movement and the Chicana
2: movement like yeah. they they intersected a lot and they I did. think it's how a lot of Chicana feminists got their start, yeah, so really, was by attending these
1: exactly. meetings. Exactly. There was actually this woman by the name of Victoria Castro, who was a former Roosevelt high schooler, and she was a femur... femer. <laughs> she was a femur. Femur? She was a femur. She was a... <laughs> She was a female leader in politics at the time and she, you know, heard about the Chicano student movements and she realized that she could really help them with these walkouts. So the seven schools that were involved in this were Wilson, Garfield, Jefferson, Roosevelt, Belmont, and Venice High Schools. And all of these... Wow, look
2: at how many presidents are in those high schools. I know, right?
1: Isn't that crazy? Um, Amazing. And all of these schools had either 75% or above in population of Hispanic students. So... Victoria Castro. Oh, by the way, she actually also helped form the Brown Berets, which is a militant Chicano rights group that support. Right.
2: With children. That's what I read is like it was like it felt like it was a youth group originally.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
2: It's like young people. It's like. You know the Girl Scouts, but they're like low key. Melotons. But they're like
1: really <laughs> badass. Uh, yeah, it says Chicanos in the Brown Berets valued bonds between women, saying that female berets must acknowledge other women as hermanas and la lucha sisters in the fight and encourage them mm. to stand together. It's a beautiful thing. I love it. Yeah. So, and also membership to the Brown Berets gave women uh, autonomy and space to share their political views without any fear of men interrupting and telling them that what they're saying is stupid. When Castro found that a note about the school district, the L.A. school district, uh, stating their rundown campuses, lack of college prep courses, and teachers who are poorly trained, indifferent, or racist, she was having none of that. So she worked with the students on having the courage to you know, stand up for their Chicano heritage and, you know, start these protests. So on March 6th, she entered Lincoln High School, pretending to apply for a teaching job, but quickly bombarded the principal with questions to distract him while the organizers entered the school. So once the organizers arrived, their job was to go from classroom to classroom to convince the kids to leave the campus. And the cool thing about this is that I was like, damn, this is like such a mic drop moment. So at the time, the way they were allocating funds is by checking the attendance every day so you got x amount of money based on how many kids showed up to school every day so they got i didn't write down the number in these notes but i did in my notebook they got like a shit ton amount of people to walk out of school and all before their homeroom so none of them were there for attendance so they fucked with the budget well, you know what? That's how you do it. Right? You fuck with their
3: money. Exactly.
1: It's always
2: how you do it. Like and unfor I mean, it's sad that like that's the way that things are, but when you exist in a capitalist society, mm-hmm. that is the priority. The priority is money, honey. Yeah. So if you can mess with their money or make it too hot for them and mess with the press, get the press to care, mm-hmm. those are the way that you ways that you accomplish exactly. things. It's unfortunate. But
1: it's true. Well, there's another really, really amazing kind of moment within this history. And that is the Farah strike, which, again, really isn't just like a feminist led movement or strike, I guess. But it was led mainly by women and they were employees of the Farah manufacturing company in El Paso, Texas, which made like clothing and textiles and stuff. So a group of Chicano women led by Sylvia M. Trevino demanded a labor union formed for better working conditions in the manufacturing company. And this strike would go on for two years and included 4,000 people, which the majority of them were women. The women in the company fought for better job security as many employees are being fired for minor reasons and the workers were always afraid of being fired. Lack of benefits. Apparently the women were instructed to take birth control pills to prevent pregnancy. They weren't able... Um, Yeah. Excuse me? Oh, oh, I forgot to mention. So there's like a doctor... There's a clinic on site. Like there's a clinic for this business with their own doctors and it's shady as fuck. So they gave them birth control pills to prevent them from getting pregnant so they can keep working. And they weren't able to take sick time off. Like if they were to go to the doctor... They would essentially be like take a number when you hear your number come back, and then like nothing would happen. And also, many illnesses were misdiagnosed by their company doctor. Like it's just so much like shitty stuff going on. And of course, there was also the discriminatory treatment. Um, well, many. Uh, this is
2: what happens when you don't value human beings as human right. beings. And we see this to this day. Like we see this happening. It is profit over people. Mm-hmm. And honestly, we see this happening to this day with Mexican migrant workers. Yes. Like just recently, and I'm sorry for not covering this in a What's in the News episode. It absolutely deserves to be covered. But with the shit show that 2020 has been, there's so much to cover. But right now, I mean, we have migrant workers working during a pandemic to in deplorable conditions to provide us our food and for instance like hashtag boycott driscoll strawberries um because the way that they are treating their employees is absolutely horrifying and they believe that they can do this because they don't see these people as human beings right and it's it's like nothing has changed right
1: yeah and and that's that was another big thing is that they weren't Getting paid enough, like compared to the men in the company, the women working for Farah a lot of times were also the sole breadwinners, win- and they would work for the company for years and still just be paid minimum wage, and all while receiving horrible treatment from their employers.
2: They well, and just messing with your bodily autonomy. I know that we talk about bodily autonomy all the time in terms of being allowed to take birth control, being allowed to get necessary abortions, saying things like that, mm-hmm. but. It's equally as fucked up to fuck with your bodily autonomy in terms of preventing you from getting pregnant yeah. if that's something that you want to well, do and this was you should also, be able to make those
1: decisions. This was in the 70s and we've talked about birth control in the 70s. It's friggin horrifying. Yes that we is have. why my mom couldn't have me for like 10 years. Everything but the kitchens terrible, um, Terrible. Obviously, their health and safety was being compromised. Some workers are working directly underneath these large air conditioners, and they were contracting bronchitis, and some suffered from a lack of ventilation. And there were also just unrealistic standards for their workers. Like, their quotas would be unbelievable. And they would say, like, yeah, we'll give you a raise if you can do this. And they would just be unreachable. It's just such a... It's such a fuckery. So this strike actually went on for 2 years.
2: Such a fuckery is a beautiful turn of Thank phrase. You. Honestly. It's
1: such a fuckery, you know. So the strike was finally over 2 years later in January of 1974 in favor of the strikers. Woo! Um, and it has been known as the strike of the century. I mean, that is a hell of a strike. 2 years is a long How time. How long? To hold yeah, 2 on, years. You know? Yeah. Mhm. But they did it. They did it and it was wonderful. <laughs> How's that for fuckery? Um, <laughs> something that I really wanted to talk to you about, because we mention the, you know, Madonna horror complex all the time oh, I in loved, our episodes.
2: I loved reading about this. This was very interesting Right, to me. exactly.
1: So these female archetypes within the Chicana community really does kind of play up on this, like, virginal status. You know, so there is the Virgin of Guadalupe, the Virgin Mary, um... There is La Yorna and La... La Llorona. La Llorona and La Merinche? I don't know I that I don't one. know that one either. <laughs> but um, they've, they say that they've prevented Chicanas from achieving sexual and bodily agency due to, quote, the ways they have been historically constructed as negative categories through the lenses of patriarchy and colonialism, which, of course, it makes so much sense. And historically, Mexican women were told to kind of define... Their self-esteem and their self-work, self-work, self-worth by kind of, you know, wanting to mirror the Virgin Guadalupe. And when they weren't able to uphold those standards, there was such an immense feeling of guilt. And mm-hmm. oh, here we go. So La Le Malienche. I remember her story now. So it's I'm not gonna get into the whole thing because it's very fucked up, but she kind of tends to symbolize female sexuality as being rather passive or even I hate to say this word, but like rapeable, you know. Okay, someone who, you know, resists rape and torture, who befriends the captor. They're taught to be blamed for the bad things that the men do for them. So it's very victim blaming. It's like essentially the story is that she allows her captor to rape and torture her. Or no, she, oh, she befriends the captor instead of letting the captor rape her to hold on to her like purity.
2: Okay, yeah, so it's it's basically I mean, but again, what does that say about your relationship with your colonizer? right cuz that's what comes to mind for me is these things are put in place not only for you to act kind of like in a in a timid or docile way uh-huh. towards the men of your own culture but it also tells you if you are being oppressed by say colonialism people coming in to your space your and fault. taking over that and and even if it's not your fault, that it would just be better for you if you shut up and take it. Like it's just better for you if you shut up and take it. Like, and also it's important to look at these dichotomies, not only within the lens of um, women and and the roles that women played, but also in the traditional gender roles, as far as like machismo goes. So you have, These, like, Madonna horror complexes that these women are being actively fed as, like, this is what's going to make you worthy. Um, And then on the other side of that, you have machismo culture, which tells men basically the opposite, which is that you are going to be celebrated for having as many women as you can well, get, right.
1: spreading your seed as much as you and can. And that was kind of, a, that's a really big issue in the stereotyping of Mexican-American women. You know, they are either seen as being, you know, exotic, very fetishized, mm-hmm. hot, sexy, mm-hmm. fiery, or... Sexualized. Yeah, very much so. Or they are seen as, you know, the lowlife barefoot pregnant at a young age low class you know it's these stereotypes that are well just i would throw untrue, in that they've been you know pushed into these right viewpoints i would
2: throw in even a third option there yeah. which would be that i i oftentimes do see a lot of people think of um latinx women or mexican american women as these very devout there's a lot of like yes Catholic, Kind of stereotyping that goes on as That's well. So it's like it—it it is a Madonna or a whore or a housewife. I feel like those are the kind of like three, um, the the three categories
1: that you very oftentimes right. see. I mean, Mexican, I very much American feel that women like, put into. I think that you know the housewife motherhood category would kind of very much fit into the Madonna in a way. You know, although she is having you know sexual relations with her husband. You know, there is still, I guess, kind of this um, idea of purity that was probably very much upheld. Just speaking as someone who grew up in the Catholic religion, uh, that's some way that I could understand it a little bit. You know, that feeling of uh, wanting the wife to be a virgin, having that sense of ownership and having that be a bit different. It's not your wife is not tainted then if it's by you. Does that make sense? Right. So she's still sure, you kind know, of falls of into that, you know, Madonna concept because she is falling into that like housewife, caring, motherly virgin Right. I guess the only role. reason the only reason I
2: made any kind of distinction there is because I feel like there is this idea of this like barefoot and pregnant wife yeah. that kind of like takes uh-huh. everything. And then there's this idea of this, you know, upheld kind of like queenly. Figure of a of very a woman so, of a yeah. wife, um, who is revered, you know, very much because of her status yeah. as as a wife. And that while they are two sides of the same coin, they're both Madonna's wives, upholding this very traditional well, kind of standard. all they're slightly different, yeah, and yeah. We
1: are all all of those things, you know, and that's something that I feel like we are still learning to understand. It's like, you are not a saint or a slut. Like, that doesn't exist. There is so much in between. Well, and you
2: have the right to... You're not defined... By these stereotypes, that's that's the whole point of feminism. I feel like people get it twisted all yeah. the time. It's just that you have the right to one be who you are and embrace that to the fullness that you can, mm-hmm. and you have the right to choose who you want to be. Yeah, and it doesn't. You shouldn't be condemned for not being able to stick into this very narrow definition of womanhood based on these arbitrary rules. Right. That your culture or your society has dictated for you because no one is ever going to be able to fall into that perfectly. Exactly. And if they are, it's crazy random happenstance. Yeah. It's not it's not because they're special or better than anyone else. Yeah. Well, you and know, as
1: hard as it is for you know, women to find their place, You know, we're also going through such change in the LGBTQ community, which I feel like there's also so much homophobia that is, Mm -hmm. you know, entangled within the machismo culture. So a lot of times, again, not speculating, just read these things. Fucking motorcycles. (laughs) You know, from what I've read, a lot of times people from Hispanic families have a harder time coming out to their families. Sometimes they have a harder time getting acceptance because of this kind of machismo culture. Again, not like trying to overgeneralize and say everyone's family is this way, but...
2: For sure. You know? If you have insight, like direct insight, if you think that we are stepping out of line or we're saying things that are wrong, please write into to us and let us know and we will talk about that. I'm like so scared to the say the, podcast. the thing. <laughs> no, I understand. No, just in general, like we've said many times, we are not women's studies majors. We haven't gone to college yeah. for this exact thing. Uh, we are presenting you with information in the way that we received it and absorbed it through our own research and it could be flawed it could be wrong and so if if that's the case if it wasn't your direct experience or if you have something to add we are always open to hearing i can just
1: definitely imagine how hard it would be to come out as you know someone from maybe like a white suburban neighborhood with like a well-to-do family that's maybe liberal and well-adjusted and things like that but um you know, when you're struggling even to define what womanhood is within your culture, trying to understand what your sexuality would be, I I feel like would be even more difficult, especially with the expectations set on you know, both men and women with their sexualities within the culture. You know, if you're a man, you've got to be a man. And if you're a woman, you've either got to be a virgin or right. a whore. It's very, very binary. It is. It's very so binary. I can imagine that with the struggles that, you know, anybody in the LGBTQ community would face, but, you know, trying to discover what you're – you know, just non-binary identity would be or just who you are would be very difficult within that sort of patriarchal structure if it's being upheld.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I made a few points here about why we still need Chicana feminism because when I was doing uh, prep for this episode, there were articles, probably written by men, I didn't open them, about why we no longer need Chicana feminism Uh. or the ways in which Chicana feminism
1: have... Uh, well, has I don't even know what the argument would be because have you looked at the shit going on at our borders? Like, <laughs> Well, uh, I mean,
2: what's the argument against feminism ever? I, yeah. I didn't open the articles, like I said, but my my guess would be that they are highly misogynistic articles. But I w- wanted, it, it prompted me to want to highlight why this stuff is still needed. So the impacts of machismo culture in particular on Mexican women persist to this day, of course, of course. <laughs> um, in Mex... So we're not talking about Mexican-American women, but of course, because families um, oftentimes live on both sides of the border, those same issues are oftentimes felt by Mexican-American women, which is why I felt the need to include this. In Mexico, in 2018, a set of data from the National Survey of Occupation and Employment showed that two out of ten engineers in Mexico are women. Only two. Oh my god! According to the AMMJE, Mexican working women de- uh, designate seventy percent of their salaries to their community and their household. Seventy percent, wow. while men. Only inject about thirty or forty percent of their resources. Exactly. Well that is why more money. Yeah, that's
1: why when the Ferris strike was happening, they were doing more of the work and they weren't getting paid as much. They were the primary breadwinners of their families for the most part and still weren't getting paid proper wages. Well and even
2: today, like nowadays, say even in families where the husband is the primary breadwinner, because of traditional gender roles and what we expect of women, right. we expect women to give to their communities and to give their money to their families. Mm-hmm. That's what we expect of them. We don't expect the same thing of men. So even if they are the breadwinners, they're still only giving about 30 or 40% of their money to their households or their communities, whereas women are giving almost all of their yeah. money and their Right. Sources. Um, Mexico remains one of the countries with the largest gender wage gap, being number 83 of 135. Mm. Unsurprisingly, um, the WTO has revealed that only about 4.2% of CEO positions in Latin America are occupied by females. Mm. So this is an article that I got from mirianwest.com mm-hmm. and they said the fact is and this was written by a Mexican uh, American woman the fact is that if at home we still make our children believe that women should not pursue the same careers as men or expect them not to be as independent, we won't see any change in these statistics, which is true. Mexican Americans in general still face racism and discrimination in the U.S. every day, Mm -hmm. and the number of attacks against Mexican Americans and Mexican American immigrants has only gone up during the Trump presidency in the last four years. According to a Pew Research Center study of Latino adults um, fielded in December of 2019, 38% of Hispanic adults said that they had personally experienced discrimination in the previous year. So more than a quarter of Hispanics said that they had experienced another kind of discrimination, Wait, said that they had experienced discrimination or been treated unfairly due to their background. Meanwhile, about a fifth said that they had been called an offensive name, been criticized for speaking Spanish in public, or been told to go back to their home country. There is also a massive problem, and you can find a lot of um, articles about this. A lot of them, what made it very difficult is a lot of them didn't focus on Mexican-Americans in particular. It focused on Latinx in general. But there is a very major problem, again, because of the cultural differences. There's a major problem with catcalling and street harassment in the United States, period. But because of the machismo culture that exists within Latinx communities, a 2014 survey from advocacy group Stop Street Harassment found that African Americans and Hispanics were more likely to experience harassment than non-Hispanic white people and that 70% of Latinx people surveyed said that they feared escalation and reprisal from their harassers. Mm Latinx people were the most likely to have been street harassed prior to the age of 17. So uh, these are all reasons why, as much as people want to say, like, why? why like, exist? why do we still need this specific brand of feminism? Because intersectionality exists. Yeah. Because feminism is not a blanket statement that covers everyone. It's not a blanket movement that covers everyone. We need to have these specific niche movements that specialize in these groups because their issues are specific to their culture. And they're specific to the way that they interact within the United States and the way they're viewed within the United States. Well, right,
1: and all of it, I just feel like, comes down to representation, really. You know, we need... God, I lost my train of thought. Never mind, forget it. I lost it.
2: <laughs> no, I, I think I understand what you're saying. As far as just like we do need representation for these groups, they need to be able to feel like this movement includes them and that yes. their issues are being heard and addressed. Yeah, exactly.
1: Like you, there was no way that at the beginning of the feminist movement that you know. Katie Elizabeth Stanton and crew were going to want to spearhead these issues because we haven't experienced them. That's why it is important to have representation in Congress and in our government. And that is what I was trying to say. And I remember it now. You know, we need more of that so that more change can happen. We can't expect one group to fix the problems for everybody because there is that lack of understanding.
2: Right. I mean, and it's not malicious. I feel like people... Are, well, it's not always yeah. malicious. I feel like people very oftentimes get... They get really in their feelings when people say, I need something specific to me. And they say, well, we're trying and why don't you think we're doing well enough? And it's not that we think that you are intentionally excluding us, which sometimes well, people honestly, are, let's be honest. if somebody
1: is saying this is a problem and I want to help fix it, then they should... Then that, wouldn't you want that person to say, well, if you know exactly what you need, then you take care of it. That's right. like, to me, that's exactly you, the point. It's like if you want something I, done right, I, do it yourself.
2: That's exactly it is the thing is like I, and I would want to support yeah, that. That's the thing. It's like you you do it and I'll do it with you. That's the thing, uh-huh. because it's like I I can be a woman. And I can be a, you know, n- non-white woman mm-hmm. in the United States. I can be both of those things and understand what that experience is like. But I can't understand personally because I don't have the experience right. of what it's like to have come from this culture. Exactly. What it's like to experience this this precise form of Which discrimination she- because I don't experience that precise right. form of discrimination. So we should not be you know? spearheading
1: it to Great. and but we should be
2: supporting of course. it but we should be supporting 100%. it like that's the thing is like don't get in your feelings don't act like saying that like hey it's not the it's not an oppression olympics it's not who has it worse none of that is what this is it's support your fellow sisters who are are fighting the same fight you are fighting but in a different exactly. way exactly there that's are more it.
1: similarities than differences i think the more that we learn yeah. Aw, so precious. We're all just one small world that's dying. It's like a Benettona. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Well, I hope that you all enjoyed this week's episode. If you would like to contact us at all, you can email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. You can direct message us and follow us there. We have a Twitter that we sometimes use at yamphpodcast. Y A N F podcast we have a Facebook business and group page you can go ahead and rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page you can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. that is what helps us the most and we really appreciate it and we got some new ones, and I thank you guys yes. for Yes. Thank oh you. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. You will be featured on Reviews Day Tuesday. Can't forget that little tidbit. Also, if you don't already, go ahead and listen to us on Radio Public. It's a free way for you to listen, and it helps us just a little bit. All right, Keegan, with all that being said,
3: we encourage you to, to rage on. on.
1: Bye. Bye.
3: What does feminism mean to you?